Hello everyone, welcome back to Atomic Hobo. I'm sorry the podcast has been quiet over the past few weeks, but um, I was at a history festival down in Chartwell and I caught Covid when I was there or when I was in London. I'd never had it before, I'd always managed to dodge it even throughout the peak of the pandemic and then it finally got me. So uh, we've all been a bit ill here recently, so that's why I've been quiet, but I'm feeling perkier today so I'm back. But let's go on with work. Uh, Before I went to Chartwell, one of my patrons had sent me some brilliant Canadian civil defence material. And now that I'm better, we can finally get our teeth into it. The material he sent me is old issues of a Canadian civil defence magazine from the 1960s called Survival. And it was published by the Alberta Emergency Measures Organisation. I have 20 issues of it, running from issue 1 in March 1962 up until the final issue, published December 64. This was, of course, a juicy time for civil defence material, as it, of course, covers the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, before we dive into the magazine, let's look at the background. What was happening in Alberta in terms of civil defence and the nuclear threat in the 60s? Firstly, Alberta. Well, I had to look up Google Maps to see exactly where it is and what it includes. It's a gigantic province in the west of Canada, and its two big cities, target cities according to the magazine, are Calgary and Edmonton. Otherwise, according to Google Maps, it is very rural and rocky and rugged. You might think that such a place doesn't need to be overly worried about nuclear attack, but of course we must remember Canada's neighbour, the USA. Southern Alberta butts right up against the American border. And also, it was widely assumed that a Soviet attack by bomber or missile would come in over the Arctic and down across Canada. So Canada is involved, whether it likes it or not, because of bloody inconvenient geography. Now, the cliché of Canadians is that, compared to their southern neighbour, they are a calm and sensible lot. And this is certainly how the civil defence organisers of Alberta were trying to portray their population during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Colonel Arnold Lavoie spoke to the Calgary Albertan newspaper on 27th October 1962. This was actually the the peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis, known as Black Saturday. So on this terrifying day, the paper had the headline, Albertans take Cuba crisis in stride. The colonel said they'd had about 50 calls a day to their civil defence office since the Cuba crisis began. And he said, quote, and few of those phoners, in fact, None, to my knowledge, were in what you'd call a panicky mood. I don't think Canadian people are the type of people who would get too overexcited in a real emergency anyway. He goes on to say, quote, 
They weren't flapping. As I was working my way through the Alberta newspaper archives for 1962, seeing evidence of them being calm and cool about the nuclear threat, I saw a headline which seemed to throw all of that up in the air. Atom war aftermath, said the Calgary Albertan, sees insects ruling world. The article began, a biologist says there's a possibility of insects taking over the world in the wake of a nuclear war. Now that doesn't sound very sensible and measured in Canadian. Ah, but wait, when we zoom in, we see that this was a report from a New York biologist. Not a cam Canadian one. Another big difference in approach between America and Canada can be found in their use of the car after a nuclear attack. It had been suggested in America that your car becomes, as the phrase went, your four wheels to survival. If the attack came, you could use the car to escape the danger and the car radio could keep you in touch with what was going on and the car itself could act as a mobile shelter and as a way of transporting your stocks of food and medicine. So the car will protect you. But in Canada, we find plans for the car which take the opposite approach. Instead of using the car to protect yourself and your own family, it was suggested in the early 60s that Canadians might hand their cars over to the authorities so that they can be used for the common good, to serve as ambulances, to transport evacuees, supplies, medicines and food. A quote here from the Calgary Herald in 1962. The Minister of Transport will have control over everything that moves in Canada, except feet. And if any Canadians were not feeling charitable and refused to hand over their cars, then the government were planning, as were many others, to cut off fuel supplies. So you couldn't drive it far anyway unless you'd stockpiled petrol far in advance. So no, from my look at the Alberta newspapers, we had no great panic or worry or fear in October 1962. The Calgary Herald carried an editorial during the Cuba crisis saying, not only does there seem to be a lack of coordination in civil defence organisation, but members of the public show a distressing lack of interest in their own survival. I wonder if that was partly to do with geography. Looking at Google Maps again, we can see that the south of Alberta is right beside the American border, but the province is huge and stretches very far north. So those not living by the border, those not feeling close to America, and those not in Alberta's target cities, may have felt, well, very removed from the threat. To clutch at a a cliché of Canada, if you look out of your window and you see mountains and rivers and bears, then you might feel detached and safe from any war that might brew between America and the Soviet Union. You might feel it's not your problem. Especially if, again, to reach for a 
cliche about Canada. You're a hardy sort who lives in rural, rocky areas and is well able to look after yourself. Used to harsh weather. Used to being cut off. Used to growing or catching your own food. I hope I'm not offending any Canadian people here. I'm just saying that's a cliche of Canada. I might explain why there was a bit of supposed apathy about a nuclear war between America and the Soviets. The editorial from the Calgary Herald mentions the civil defence organisation, the Emergency Measures Organisation. And that's the same group who produced the magazine that we're going to look at. And they said that the EMO, Emergency Measures Organisation, should not seek to get Albertans, quote, into a panic, but that they should be on their toes. The piece ends by saying, instead of taking an it-can't-happen-here attitude, citizens should start thinking, and start thinking seriously, about what they will do if nuclear war breaks out. I found a good example of the helplessness that many Canadians might have felt, and it, perhaps it was that helplessness which drove apathy. This was in the letters page of the Calgary Herald during the Cuba crisis. The letter referred to the due line. Due stands for distant early warning, so it's the distant early warning line, which was a chain of radar stations strung along the Arctic, the north of Canada, the north coast of Alaska, out into Greenland. And the idea was that Soviet bombers would be most likely to come in across the Arctic and the dew line, being very far north, would detect them and warn of the attack, giving a decent warning time, perhaps as much as hours of warning, for the USA and the bulk of Canada. But the letter writer to the Calgary Herald in October 1962, makes a good point. He says that Canadians, and I suppose Americans, have been schooled by the dew line to expect nuclear attack from the north. But all of a sudden, with the eruption of the Cuba crisis, it looked like attack would come from the south. All this time, we've been looking the wrong way. The letter writer said... All these years of preparing the dew line to warn of an attack from the north, we faced extinction last week from the south. The minister in charge of civil defence tried to sharpen the minds by declaring Alberta could become what he calls a nuclear bowling alley. He said this after learning that the USA planned to construct missile silos in Montana, which is right beside the southern border of Alberta. He said, quote, The enemy will probably know more or less where they are, and coming over the North Pole to strike at them, Alberta will be right in the middle of the road, especially if the US sends aircraft up to intercept them. He also raised the concern that Alberta could be in big trouble if any Soviet bombers flying down to attack Montana got scared off by US resistance and were to, quote, drop their bombs over us and then scurry home. 
There were attempts to overcome general apathy and to pep up interest in civil defence. In June 1961, a major civil defence exercise in Calgary demonstrated rescue and first aid techniques. Now, these uh, rescue scenarios were so realistic that in one of them, it was reported that a sheep's eyeball was placed on one of the victims, one of the pretend victims, of course, one of their cheeks to simulate how to deal with a gouged eyeball. Indeed, many of the kids found it a great laugh, the local paper reported. Quote, children with gaping stomach wounds, protruding broken bones or hideous burns laughed and chatted gaily in Calgary Wednesday. The civil defence trainers told the newspaper that it was necessary to make the fake wounds look realistic so that rescue workers will become accustomed to gruesome sights and not start to faint and vomit if it actually happened. Hence the the sheep's eyeball. Quote, The sight of blood bubbling from a wound via hidden plastic tubing or an abdominal gash complete with hanging entrails courtesy of a Calgary slaughterhouse is calculated to test the hardiest stomach. So well done to Canada in trying to make their civil defence rescue lessons realistic. In all my reading of British um, civil defence exercises, I never saw mention of sheep's eyeballs. Now amidst all these attempts to shake up the Albertans, the Calgary Alberta newspaper ran a series of articles in early 1963, so that's obviously a couple of months after the Cuba crisis had resolved, and these articles were called Annihilation by Apathy. One of them said, quote, If an enemy decided to strike the city today with a nuclear bomb, Calgarians would be in relatively rotten shape to meet the challenge. An Albertan man in the street poll showed 9 out of 10 Calgarians know little to nothing about civil defence. And then some quotes from the poll. I have no time for it. If it comes, that's it. Don't be silly, there's not going to be a war. It was all there, the paper accuses, in the poll. These articles, Annihilation by Apathy, also spoke of the Calgary population's relative ignorance about civil defence due to, quote, laziness, fatalistic or no-time attitudes, stupidity or stubbornness. If zero hour came this afternoon, hundreds of thousands of Calgarians who could have been saved would probably perish in a cauldron of mayhem and chaos. Roads jammed, people screaming, others trying frantically to find and gather scattered families, fights over food, gas and other supplies, persons without cars fleeing on foot, causing more traffic tie-ups. In short, a nightmare. Another article in the series uses similar <laughs> colourful prose to try and scare people into caring about civil defence. I'll quote here. A five megaton hydrogen bomb detonated 500 feet above Centre Street and 8th Avenue. Calgary's downtown glowed chalk white and cherry red 
turned into liquid, then incandescent gas, all in less than a second. Everyone died. So it was against this backdrop of apathy that the Alberta Emergency Measures Organization decided to produce a civil defense magazine called Survival. So let's look at it. I have every issue here, thanks to one of my patrons who sent them to me. I will put screenshots of the magazine, the whole magazine, on my Patreon page. But for now, we will just dip into one or two particularly amusing or entertaining bits. Firstly, <laughs> the front cover. It's a, it's a creamy coloured paper magazine. And the front has a cartoon of a man crouched over his desk reading civil defence plans. And behind him, looming over his chair, is what looks like a giant hot dog. <laughs> it's supposed to be a nuclear missile, but it looks to me like a hot dog. So this big nuclear missile is looming over his chair and is leading at him. And the caption says, don't bother, I'd rather just drop in. So they're trying to be funny. Now why are they trying to be funny and light-hearted on the front cover of this magazine? Surely if you want to tackle apathy about the nuclear threat, <laughs> then you should try and deliver fear, anxiety, the truth, not creepy hot dogs. So obviously taking a different approach from what we had in Britain with, for example, Protect and Survive Monthly, which admittedly was from the 80s, not the 60s, but there was nothing humorous there. They were trying to frighten people. It's the same with our public information booklets, Protect and Survive, there's nothing humorous in that. But over here in Canada, they were trying to take a more light-hearted approach, or at least mixing the, the horror in with a bit of humour. So let's open the magazine. A quick skip through the pages surprised me because it is very dense with text. If you think about public information booklets about nuclear war, they, they are the opposite. Their pages are uncluttered, there is lots of space on them, and certainly lots of images. That's because, of course, it's supposed to be simple and accessible. They want to get information across to you very quickly in what will probably be a time of great stress. And, of course, it has to reach everyone of every level of intelligence and of every reading age. This magazine, on the other hand, is not a public information booklet. It's a magazine, so it's perhaps designed to be read in a comfy armchair with a cup of tea. So they're not afraid to jam the pages with words. They have that luxury. But then, again, if we compare it to Protect and Survive Monthly, the British magazine about civil defence and nuclear survival, they were not so heavily jammed with text. But maybe that's because they were no doubt obliged to give lots of their space over to adverts and therefore images because they needed the income. This Canadian mag is created by a government body. It's not a private enterprise, so they don't need to worry about the costs, I suppose. So let's take a quick look at the contents page to let you know the flavour. We have some 
ordinary and predictable articles for such a magazine, one called Fallout Dangers Explained, for example. There's one called Simpler Shelters. There's one called So Near and So Far. Uh, The near in that is capitalised. See my previous episode for a look at the near alert system. We have an article with the more unusual headline of My Daughter Brought It Home. And we have a quiz called 43 Deadly Sins. We have a guide to NATO crests and emblems. Something called Recommendations by the Committee for a Sane Policy. Brackets. Humour. And an article called Blitz and Pieces. And a test called What's Your Civil Defence Quotient? So we have a really mixed bag here. Quizzes and tests and light-hearted pieces next to more sombre articles about fallout and shelter building. Okay, so let's go in. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will put the full magazine on my Patreon page, but here today I will just pick out some, some gems for you. Let's start with the article with the strange title, My Daughter Brought It Home. It refers to recent newspaper reports in Alberta, which announced that children, if a nuclear attack was imminent, would be sent home from school. This news was reported in two newspapers as a simple matter of fact. The news was reported, but no comment or opinion was offered. It's a tricky subject, of course. What to do with the children who are at school if the siren sounds? Do you gather them together in the school, down in the basement or school shelter? Or do you give them the chance to run for home so they can be with family? So a difficult subject, there's no easy answer to it. And we see this explored in the American film Ladybug, Ladybug. I believe I've done an episode on that. You might find it in the archive. Good film, I recommend it to you. I believe it's on YouTube. Um, It's based on a true story where there was a false alarm, of course, in a county in Los Angeles, and the school had to work out whether to, you know, what do they do with all the children? How do they keep them safe? Can you keep them safe? Do you gather them or do you let them run? So one Alberta newspaper, the Canadian Tribune, they chose not to report this difficult matter in a dispassionate way. Instead, they reported it Beside a letter which had been distributed to pupils by the superintendent of public schools for the township of York. The paper reprinted that letter, which says, Dear Parent or Guardian, The Board of Education recently adopted a policy to be followed for the present in the schools in case of an emergency such as a nuclear attack. The Board approved the following. In the event of an emergency, such as a nuclear attack, during school hours, the pupils will be dismissed as promptly as possible and urged to go directly home or to other such destinations as the parents have arranged for the child or children. While trusting that such an emergency will never occur, the board requested that parents be notified of this policy. Yours sincerely, J.D. Hanmer, Superintendent of Public Schools. Now, what a difficult topic. 
If you were a teacher or janitor or school admin staff with a family of your own at home, wouldn't you want to run back? But imagine the headmistress standing over you saying, no, you may not spend these last hours with your family. Get back to your class, please. It's the same issue we have with doctors and nurses and the staff chosen for war duty at bunkers. Would they turn up on the day? Would they stay at their post? You can never be sure of that. And so you can't be sure that teachers will shrug off their own families, their own children, to stay obediently at school throughout the nuclear attack. So maybe, knowing this, or fretting about the possibility of that, the schools thought it would be best to just fling the doors open and hope that the kids can make it home. But will the kids make it home? What about the wee ones, the the four and five-year-olds? Can they run? Are their little legs fast enough and strong enough to get them home in time? What about children who live too far away, out in a rural area, or who have a disability? How do they make it home in time? What if mum and dad are both at work and not able to likewise get home in time to meet the kid? So does the kid need to see out the nuclear attack alone, hiding in the garden shed? And what if a child can indeed make it home safely and a good time? What if his mum and dad are there, standing by the door with a nice fallout shelter waiting to receive him? In that case, what right do the school have to say, no, he needs to head down to the basement and may not run home to mum and dad and a properly stocked shelter? We will retain control. Well, there is no easy answer. But let's see what the newspaper, the Canadian Tribune, had to say on the matter. I quote here from her magazine, Frightened school children in Metro Toronto brought copies of the above letter home to their parents last week. The letters, one of which was passed to the Tribune by one of the mothers affected, were not in envelopes. Thus, the public school children had ample opportunity to learn of the tragic ending their elders contemplated for them, made worse by the stupidity and hopelessness of the plans outlined. So that's what the newspaper printed. But the survival magazine that we're reading here today obviously favoured civil defence and believed, or pretended to believe, that nuclear war was survivable. So the magazine is annoyed by that scaremongering from the Canada Tribune. They say there was nothing in that letter to scare children. I suppose they are right on that fact. There is no blunt mention of fire and sickness and death. It's all written in very plain language. Unless, of course, the child who might have sneaked a peek at the letter knows what the phrase nuclear attack involves. But I can assume that the younger ones certainly wouldn't have. The magazine also says that just because the siren might wail, it doesn't necessarily mean that the child's city is going to be hit. It might be a a nationwide alert which rings out. And maybe only the big cities are destroyed. So little kids in small towns and rural areas just shut up and quit worrying. 
Well, I might accept the first point, but I can't accept the latter. Are we supposed to just shrug and carry on with life? Because only the cities have been incinerated. If you are far out in the Canadian wilderness or in a little one-horse town, then do you need to worry? This is absurd, of course you do. Listeners to this podcast know very well what would happen once the threads which hold a society together and allow it to function are snapped. We also know that fallout drifts, that starving refugees and looters are mobile. The collapse of the health service and of the sewage and water and electricity systems. Well, we've been through all of this in the podcast. So there is no way you can stay snug and smug and keep your head down in a nuclear war just because you live outside a target area. Let's turn now to a short humorous article. It's called... Recommendations by the Committee for a Sane Navigational Policy. It is written in the style of a a notice given out to passengers on a cruise or a ship who wish to have lifeboats installed. And it's supposed to be a sarcastic swipe at those who refuse to learn about civil defence, refuse to participate in it, or who claim it is useless. So the notice which is supposed to be humorous, gives reasons why the captain of the ship has refused to install lifeboats, including it would lull you into a false sense of security. It would cause undue alarm and destroy your desire to continue your voyage. It demonstrates a lack of faith in the captain. The apparent security which lifeboats offer will make our navigators reckless. If the lifeboats do not sink, you will only be saved for an even worse fate. Inevitable death on the open sea. So here we are, poking fun at those who say there's no point in civil defence, there's no point trying to survive. And then on the final page, (laughs) the editor has written a poem for us. I'll read it out for you. As this edition nears its end, I am beset by doubt... Have I just made or lost new friends? Have I left something out? Perhaps I've flattered or reviled a sacred cow or two. Perhaps material compiled did not reflect your view. Forgive this once my errors great, for I am far from wise. I welcome now your right to state, your views and criticise. To send your brickbats or bouquets... Irate or filled with beauty, let's know your thoughts and future days we'll know and do our duty. Submit your news or verse or art, your viewpoint is invited, and we will do our humble part considerably delighted. This magazine's initial stint is merely a rehearsal. All the news that fits we print, albeit controversial. So, a strange little magazine. One which has lots of humour and light-heartedness in it. But which is trying to tackle apathy about the nuclear threat. I would have chosen the route of trying to scare everyone, not try to provoke some chuckles. 
But then if you push the, the scare angle too far, you probably just get despair. And I assume despair has the same outcome as apathy. The population will not engage with civil defence and will not do anything to protect themselves. Despair and apathy probably meet and result in nothing being done. But certainly this magazine has a different flavour for anything I've seen in, uh, in British civil defence, which tends to be quite dour, quite serious. This one is trying to be jaunty, welcoming, and it's strange to see that approach applied to nuclear war. So the rest of the magazine, it's uh, this is the first edition, of course, the first issue, and it is 12 pages long. I've uploaded the rest onto my Patreon page, so you can get access to the full thing there, if you remember. You can join us over there for um, as little as £1 per month. And you're free, of course, to cancel at any time. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And there are, I think, about 15, 16 other issues. So I will, of course, look through them all and in later episodes pick out uh, some more funny, strange, unusual, weird bits for you. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry the podcast has been quiet for a few weeks. I went off to Chartwell in Kent a few weeks ago to speak at one of their history festivals. And I think I caught COVID while I was there. So I've been ill since with COVID. And then a couple of weeks ago, I got some more dental work done and was sedated. And I've been all woozy and my chin is all bruised. And I've just been <laughs> I've just been under the weather, a bit run down. Uh, so I do apologise for being quiet, but back now. And before I go, let me just tell you that my friend and a patron of the podcast, Sean Judge, has made, and they are, they are fantastic, he has made models of the traffic warden from Threads. And he's selling them, of course, so if you want to see them, I will upload pictures to the Patreon post that I'm going to do. But you can go directly to Sean on Facebook. He has a page about Threads called The Threads Survivors. So if you look up Thread Survivors on Facebook, you can, of course, join that community of, of Threads fanatics and you will see the traffic warden. Um, he is absolutely great. I've got one. You can either buy him um, plain or, for an additional cost, Sean can paint it for you. So I got the painted one and he is fantastic. <laughs> so take a look at Threads Survivors on Facebook and check out this traffic warden. Mine is sitting on my desk right now, uh, grimacing at me with his gun. It's, I love it. I absolutely love it. Anyone who's been to both of the HoboCon events that I've put on will have met Sean. Um, so check him out via the Thread Survivors Facebook page. Okay, thank you for listening. <laughs>